Thank you, choir. I was thinking as they were uh, singing, I am determined to live for my king. I, uh, God just sort of uh, brought to my heart uh, the Apostle Paul and his determination to live for Christ. You remember uh, he was in the middle of a four-year imprisonment uh, that began in Caesarea. He was uh, in Rome in prison awaiting trial before the fanatic, the madman Nero. He had no idea whether he was going to live or be executed for his faith. And, uh, and this is what he said in prison. He said, this is my earnest hope and expectation. This is the one thing I'm counting on God to do in my life right now in this situation. That I be put to shame in nothing. But that Christ, even right now, is always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So instead of uh, whining, he decided, I'm going to shine for Christ in this prison cell. And many of you know the results. Uh, he were, was able to lead many of those guards to the saving knowledge of Christ. And they were just not any soldiers. They were the Praetorian Guard, the most elite soldiers in all of Rome that had access to Caesar's household because they were his personal bodyguards. And as a result of Paul's witness to them, at the end of the book, it says the gospel had even penetrated the very household of Caesar himself. And uh, folks, when you have that kind of attitude, the gospel can't be stopped. Amen? And uh, God will use us to advance it regardless of uh, the circumstances. Well, we just finished a uh, 22-week series on uh, learning how to love one another in the family of God. Now we shift our focus to loving those outside uh, God's family. And today we begin a uh, six-week series entitled Telling Others the Good News. And our first lesson is Jesus' invitation to show and tell the good news. And that invitation is found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus invited the brothers, Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now, right up front, let's just get some things out on the table. If honest, most of us would confess, you know, Brother Andy, I would have preferred you to have picked a different topic for our sermon series. Now, why? Because whenever the subject of evangelism comes up, the two most common emotions experienced by Christians is fear and guilt. The primary reason we do not tell others the good news about Jesus is fear. A fear rooted in three things. First, we simply do not know how to start spiritual conversations with non-Christians. We feel very awkward at that point. Second, we really don't know what to tell them, how to present the gospel. And third, we're worried about what they're going to think about us. You know, am I going to just uh, sound like a rambling idiot and make a fool of myself? Uh, will they still be my friend? Will they think less of me? Will I lose their respect? And also keep in mind, the devil is involved in the mix to exaggerate our fears in order to keep our mouths shut about Jesus when around non-Christians. Fear paralyzes us 
from opening our mouths and telling others the good news about Jesus. And that fear produces guilt. Guilt for being a coward. Guilt for missed opportunities. Guilt for our lack of compassion for the loss. Virtually every sincere and earnest Christian is burdened by a sense of weakness or neglect or failure in this area of evangelism. We sincerely, and I believe this, we sincerely want to bring Christ to non-Christians. We want to see them move from unbelief to belief in Christ, but we have little success. The result is we have this oppressive feeling whenever the subject of evangelism is raised, and we recoil in self-defense from sermons on evangelism. Now, let me be very honest. I struggle. I'm talking about Andy Merritt. I struggle with the same issues of fear and guilt. Therefore, I do not come in this series with a rod. No, I come with a personal longing and a sincere dream for our church. The personal longing is that I, I will be changed by these messages, that my latter years will be my most fruitful years as a fisher of men. I long for a fresh touch of power, not only on my preaching, but also on my personal contact and interaction with non-Christians. My dream for our church is that the personal reality of Jesus Christ and His love will become so deep and all-satisfying in us that the paralyzing effects of fear and guilt will be replaced with an excitement and a joy that will make it virtually impossible not to tell others about Jesus. My dream is that the power of Christ will rest on us with such unusual effectiveness that non-Christians will be converted to Christ through the witness of the Edgewood family. I do not come to promote a new program of evangelism for our church. There will be no pressure for you to sign up for anything. I promise not to browbeat you with guilt. I simply come asking God to give us a contagious evangelistic lifestyle rooted in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this first message, actually the first two messages in the series, really lay a very needed foundation. And then from that foundation, uh, we will get very, very practical in this study on the how-to uh, to start spiritual conversations, to share the gospel, to look and seize the opportunities that God gives us. But we need to see today that Jesus is ex extending the same invitation that he extended to Peter and Andrew that we alluded to in Matthew 4.19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In this one invitation, we discover the answer to three fundamental questions in every believer's life. First, what is God's plan for my life? Second, what is God's purpose for my life? And third, what is God's promise to me? So please, follow in your sermon notes as we look at and answer the first question, what is God's plan for my life? As a Christian, 
what is God's plan for my life? And Jesus summed up the answer in just two words. Follow me. Follow me. I cannot think of a simpler or more clear and precise definition of a Christian than this. One who follows Jesus. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Look at the first point in your notes. To follow Jesus is to trace my life after Jesus. To follow Jesus is to trace my life after Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 reads, He, Jesus, is your example, and you must, notice, follow in His steps. Please circle that word, example. Jesus is your example. The word example is hupogramos in the Greek text. Hupo meaning under, and gramos meaning writing. The word was used. This is a, a beautiful illustration. The word was used of children tracing over the letters of the alphabet or words previously written down by their teacher in order to learn them. So Peter is saying, just as a child slowly and deliberately traces over the letters and the words to learn them, believers are to slowly and deliberately trace their lives over the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hupogramos. We are to trace our lives following the pattern of His life. Look at Romans 8, verse 29. In your sermon notes, as it is written in the paraphrase, the message. I love the way it puts this. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love Him along the same lines as the life of His Son. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Him. What is God's plan for my life? To follow Jesus, which is synonymous with what? Becoming like Jesus. These next verses are not in your sermon notes, but listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. Uh, some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. It says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, in the context, earlier in the chapter, Paul makes a comment that if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing, those that are blinded to the reality of Jesus Christ. But then he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. As God's Spirit begins to work on a lost person, opens their eyes to see the light of Jesus Christ, brings them to salvation, everything changes. And verse 18 then says, but we all with unveiled face. In other words, through salvation, that veil is removed. We see that glorious light. That light penetrates and captures our hearts and lives. We're changed. We're transformed. And then he says, we behold as in a mirror. And that mirror is the Word of God. It is we behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord. As we get into the Scriptures what we see is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We fall in love with His person. We develop a deep appreciation for His work and what He accomplished 
for us and what he's accomplishing through us. And then he says, and we are being transformed. We are being transformed as a result into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You've heard me say many times from this pulpit, God desires to form the character of Christ in us to be what? Displayed through us. And so it is important as we begin to talk about telling others the good news that before there can be an effective verbalization of the gospel, there needs to be a powerful what? Visualization through our lives as others see the reality of Christ in us. And in our last series, we even looked at one of the primary ways that God has given us to demonstrate His reality in our midst by what? Loving one another as He loved us. See, God wants to raise us up uh, in a way to be His telescope and to be His microscope. See, so many people just see Jesus as a dis- at a distance, as some remote figure in history that really has no impact on their lives. And Jesus wants to use us as His telescope to bring Christ up close and personal to those individuals. That they see His reality. And they see the opportunity they have to be touched and transformed by His grace. But also His microscope. There's so many people see Jesus as so very small, so insignificant. So Jesus, God wants to use us to enlarge the greatness of Jesus. To glorify Him. To lift Him up. That people will see His greatness. Now go to the next point in your notes. To follow Jesus... It's also to turn away from all distractions. I must trace my life after Jesus, but if I'm going to do that, I must turn away from all distractions. See, if I'm to follow in His footsteps, then I cannot allow myself to be distracted. And this is exactly the point in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let me pause right there. Who's that referring to? He's just come out of chapter 11. And this amazing testimony of these Old Testament saints who God captured by His grace. And even despite their struggles and their weaknesses and their uh, failures, He used them as they put their trust in Him. As they confronted situation after situation, they had a choice. Am I going to just focus on the impossibility of my circumstances or am I going to focus on the impossibility of God breaking His Word? And they said, God is able. Although I don't see how it's going to, I'm going to trust Him. And God did such wonderful things through these believers. So He's referring back to them. He said, look back at all those examples that we have. And in light of that, He says, let us... Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, we're in a race as believers. You started that race when you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That race will not end until you see Jesus face to face. I ran track from the third grade competitive organized track all the way through college. And I can tell you, a race is very simple. You start at point A, and you're going to point B, and you want to get there quicker than everybody else. Therefore, the last thing you want is anything to slow you up. You don't want to get entangled. You don't want to get tripped up. Therefore, he says, 
Don't get entangled by sin. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't let other things get a greater sense of importance and value in your life than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about that last week. The essence of sin is not the difference between good and evil, but when anything or anyone becomes more important in my life than Jesus. Jesus wants to be my first love, my greatest passion and pursuit, where I keep my eyes focused on Him. I refuse to be distracted. I'm riveted on Him. But He says, not only sin, but He says, don't get entangled in encumbrances. What are encumbrances? These could be good things that we get involved in that distract us from God's ultimate plan and purpose for our lives. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't let other interests and cares and ambitions creep into our lives that take our primary focus off of Jesus and pleasing Him and honoring Him and finishing the work that He has for us here on earth to do. Look at the next point in your notes, which pulls it all together. To follow Jesus is to stay tuned in on Jesus. To stay tuned in. If I'm to successfully trace my life after Jesus, it's obvious I must turn away from all distractions and stay tuned in on Jesus. You know, we talked about Jesus being the hoopogramas. We talked about that illustration of the children learning their letters and words by tracing over the letters and words a teacher had previously written down. In other words, just a simple example, if, if you were to take your sermon notes and put a blank piece of paper on them, and if I were to ask you to trace over these letters and words, folks, you're not going to successfully do that unless what? You're focused on this. Because if you don't stay focused on this, what? You're just going to go all over the place. And that's the same way it is with Jesus. We have to turn away from the distractions, stay tuned in on Jesus. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Again, from the paraphrase, the message. I've got my eye on the goal. You know, it's the finish line where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, and I'm not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal. And going back to Hebrews 12, look at verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, focus on him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart as you run your race. And then look at the fourth truth about what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to treasure the lost. It's to treasure the lost, to treasure non-Christians, to treasure unbelievers. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. In chapter, in chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables to emphasize how much God values lost people, how much He treasures lost people. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the one that you're most familiar with, the parable of the lost son, that we often call the prodigal son. So first look at the first two verses that tells us why Jesus shared these parables. 
Now all the tax collectors, verse 1, chapter 15 of Luke, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, you know, the Pharisees and scribes, they're watching the ministry of Jesus, and they're seeing Jesus go to the other side of the tracks, going to the outcast of society, to sinners. And they begin to grumble and murmur. They, they, they think this is a compromise of faith. And so Jesus tells them these three parables to help them understand why he's spending so much time with sinners, why he loves sinners, why he values sinners, why he treasures sinners. So look at the first parable, verse 3. And we don't have time to give any comment, but it's just to read it, you'll get the impact. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, notice, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus loves, values, treasures non-Christians. Look at the next parable, the lost coin. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then you know the story of the, the prodigal son, this son who uh, asked for his father's inheritance early, and then he went off into a rebellious, riotous, immoral lifestyle, squandered uh, that inheritance. He ends up in a literal pig pen, and there in that pig pen, in the brokenness of his circumstances, the Bible says he came to his senses. And then notice verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, look at this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love for lost sinners. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. 
Thomas Watson, great, great Puritan writer, made this statement. Such a beautiful statement. He says, we may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. And that is so very, very true. And so part of following Jesus is to ask him to so work in our hearts that we begin to treasure and value lost people as he valued and treasured lost people. Now, move to the next question. What is God's purpose for my life? We've seen what God's plan is for me to follow Jesus. What is God's purpose for my life? He says, follow me and I will make you, what's the next phrase? Fishers of men. That's God's purpose in the life of every believer. He wants to, wants to make us a fisher of men. In uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus said to Peter, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. Now, let me just give you the, the backdrop to this story. Jesus had just extended the invitation to Peter and Andrew, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. If you're familiar with the story, Peter and Andrew had been out fishing all night, caught nothing. It was early morning. They were mending their nets. Peter was casting out his net one last time. They were sort of putting all things up. Here comes Jesus walking along the shore. He turns to him. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. The Bible says that these two brothers literally left everything at that point to follow Jesus. At that very point, a large crowd had gathered because they, they realized Jesus was there. So Jesus borrows Peter and Andrew's boat. And he gets in the boat with Peter and Andrew, and he asks them to cast off a little bit from the shore, and using their bo boat as his pulpit, he begins to cast his net to catch men for the kingdom of God. Peter is literally sitting in the boat in the shadow of Jesus, marveling over Christ casting his net to catch men. And then you know the story. Once Jesus finished his preaching, his teaching, he, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, right now I want you to put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, initially, there was a moment of hesitation. I mean, Peter's a professional fisherman. They had been fishing all night, and they had literally caught nothing. They were tired. They were exhausted. They were frustrated. Plus, you don't catch fish in the deep waters. You catch them in the shallow waters. You don't typically catch them at daytime. You catch them at night. So what Jesus was asking him to do was counter to everything that a fisherman knew to do to be successful. But to Peter's credit, he says what? Nevertheless, at thy word, I will obey. So they take their boat, cast into the deep, they throw that, and remember they catch this humongous drought of fish that they couldn't even hardly pull up into the boat. Now the miracle was, the miracle was not that there was such a large a school of fish in one place. The miracle was that Jesus could supernaturally look down into the depths of that sea and see where that school of fish was. Peter 
suddenly realizes if Jesus can see down to the depths of this sea, he can see into the very depths of my heart. He knows the sinner I am. He knows my every struggle, my every failure, my every deficiency. How could I ever be a fisher of men in light of who I am, what I've done, and the struggles I have? And he throws himself, the Bible tells, at the feet of Jesus. And you remember what he said? He, he says, you know, depart from me, Lord Jesus, for I am an evil and wicked, sinful man. And Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, don't fear. From now on, you're going to be catching men. The next time you feel like God can't use you because of past sin or present liabilities, remember this story of Peter. Jesus knows your past sin. He knows your present liabilities. And he still extends the invitation, follow me, and I'll make you to be a fisherman. And let me remind you of some other individuals that God used. Now, it doesn't condone the sin and the failure, but it just shows God's grace, God's mercy, God's willingness to forgive, to give a new beginning, But Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid, eaten up with worry. Samson had long hair, and he struggled with women. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were both too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a bitter widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter later denied Christ three times. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced and more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer, and Lazarus was dead. So stop the excuses. God is able. Amen? Look at the second thing. To become a fisher of men is to ask Jesus to give me his compassion for non-Christians. You know, we talked about Asking God to open our hearts to treasure, to value the importance of non-Christians. And we want to ask God with that to give us a compassion for non-Christians. Look at Matthew 9, 36, referring to Jesus. And seeing the multitude, he felt, what did he feel? Compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus looked beyond the faults of non-Christian to see their need. Non-Christians do the things they do because what? Their sinful condition. What would you expect? Nothing else. We need to ask ourselves, when we look at the news 
and what's happening in our culture and our world. Do we get angry? Do we get mad? Or do we weep? Because our Savior weeps. Our Savior feels compassion for the worst of non-Christians because he understands their sinful condition that you would not expect anything else. And he also realizes, listen now, there can be no change on the outside until there's a change on the inside. And Jesus realizes there's only one thing that has the power to produce that, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to ask God to turn our hearts, to give us a great compassion for the lost, and again, the worst of unchristians, to realize it's just their sinful condition. And we have to look beyond the fault to see their need and realize the only thing that can change that is the gospel. Look at the third thing. And this is a truth that we're really going to focus in on the last three messages of this series. To become a fisher of men, this is where we begin to get the, where the rubber meets the road, is to intentionally seek involvement with non-Christians. Contacts lead to conversations, which in turn lead to conversions. And again, these, the last three messages in this series, we're going to talk a lot about this, about establishing contacts with non-Christians, about how to begin spiritual con- conversations with, with un- non-Christians, and then how to use those conversations to look for opportunities to be able to share the good news of the gospel that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But look at our Savior's example, Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come, what? To seek and to save that which, which was lost. Luke 15, 2, we already looked at this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Circle that word, receives. In the Greek text, very powerful word. The root word is dekamai. It's talking about Jesus was excited. He was eager to reach out to the lost. He took the initiative. That's where he wanted to have his contact. That's where he wanted to be involved because he had come to seek and save the lost and he had come to seek and save them because he loves them, he values them, he treasures them. And then look at Acts 20, verse 24. This is where I actually got the title for this sermon series. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you, and don't be afraid of people, for I will be with you and take care of you. I know just quoting that verse doesn't necessarily overcome our fears, but one of the messages going forward, we're going to look specifically how to overcome fear in this area. Not that we're going to be able to remove the fear, but how to overcome the fear to be obedient to Jesus, to know boldness in sharing His truth to others. And then look at the fourth truth. To become a fisher of men, I must learn how to bait my hook with my testimony. 
To become a fisherman, I must learn how to bait my hook with my testimony. Acts 1, verse 8. You shall be my, what's that word? Witnesses. Circle that. Witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You don't have to be some walking Bible encyclopedia to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. You're just to be a witness. And what does a witness do? He gets on the stand. And he simply tells what he saw, what he heard, what he knows to be true. I mean, think, think of the man that Jesus healed that was blind. I mean, that guy knew virtually nothing about his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. All he could say is what? Hey, I was once blind, but what? Now I see. That's being a witness. Just simply communicating what Jesus means to you, what Jesus has done in your life. And look there in your notes. There are basically four aspects to a testimony. And I would encourage you, and I've done this before, I would encourage you to literally write down your testimony where you could share it very effectively in about three minutes. Now, sometimes you may have an opportunity to expand upon that, but I would encourage every believer to write down their testimony where you could share it in about three minutes. And these four elements need to be in that. What my life was like before I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Two, how I realized my need for Jesus. How did Christ awaken my heart to see my need, to see my reality, to be drawn to Him? And then how I received Jesus into my life. And then the difference Jesus has made in my life. And then finally, look at that last question. What is God's promise to me? He says, I will notice. I will make you. I, I, I will make you. That's Jesus saying that. Jesus will make you fishers of men. He's saying, if you will obey me in this matter, if you will give your heart to me in this matter, look to me in prayer in this matter, I give you a promise. I will empower you. I will do this work. I will change. I will transform. I will give you that compassion for the lost where you see them as a treasure. I will teach you how to engage in spiritual conversations, how to look for open doors, opportunities, and then seize those opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I go back to Luke 5, verse 4, put out into the deep water, what he told Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And folks, here it is right here. Put out in the deep water, go where God sends me. That's what he's saying. Put out into the deep water. That's the lesson. Go where God sends me. Let down your nets. Do what God tells me for a catch. God will empower me. Put out into the deep water. Go where God sends me. Let down your nets. Do what God tells me for a catch. God will empower me. And then just one concluding thought. I want you to get down in your notes. The devil does not care if my life is filled with good or bad things. He doesn't give a rip. Whether it's filled with good things or bad things. He doesn't care if I'm the most moral, righteous, outstanding person in the community or I'm this rotten, immoral person as long as I am distracted from doing the one thing God put me here on earth to do, which is to show and tell the good news. Now, next week will be a very important message. Again, sort of the last foundational message before we get into some of the practical aspects, we're going to look at, we're going to raise the question, 
Well, what is the Christian's responsibility in telling you? And what is God's responsibility? Because it's very important to see that. And to give you a little hint. And, and when you see this, it will relax you. It will take the pressure off of you. Folks, there's only one soul winner, and it ain't you. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. So it's very important for us not to assume responsibility God never intended us to carry. But we do have responsibility. We're a partner with Christ. We're a co-laborer with Christ. So we do have responsibility. We're going to see that, and it's obvious what it is to be deliberate in establishing those contacts, engaging in spiritual conversation, looking for those open doors and opportunities to share the gospel and learning how to do that. And that's where, what our focus will be, will be on.